0: Hey friends, welcome to season three of Tulips in Tuscany.
1: We're so excited you're here. I'm Steffi.
0: Paige. And I'm
2: Sarah. We're excited to dive into this next season with you and we hope our conversations provide some great insight and support as we navigate this journey through Holland. Hey everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We have a guest joining us tonight, so I hope you all enjoy listening to our journey as much as we do. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. So I am super excited that my son and I just started working with a company called Simple Spectrum. They are one of the highest quality vitamins and minerals in the most bioavailable forms and nothing else, which is really how supplements should be. Their mission was to create the kind of nutraceutical supplement that they wanted to see available based on the latest scientific research and free from the additives packed into so many other similar products on the market. I love that they understand it's not always realistic to get your child to take multiple products in a day which is why they created an all-in-one prebiotic. Their supplement provides the nutritional needs of the developing nervous system with extra support for individuals with autism, like my son Lane, by addressing potential dietary deficits often seen in children with autism due to picky eating habits and sensory issues. So be sure to head to the link in our podcast notes to check them out. Now, if you'll please help me welcome Amanda to our podcast.
1: Hi, Hi, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hi. So we want to thank you for joining us, and we just wanted to start by having you tell us a little bit about you and your family background.
3: So my name is Amanda Kern, and I am, am, the, am the mother of three kids, um, and I am married to my husband Jason, and we live here in Orlando, Florida. Um, I am a um, professor at Valencia College. I am also a professional photographer. I mostly specialize in newborns as well as doing a lot of nonprofit work. And then I'm the founder of redefining spina bifida.
0: Your special guy that has spina bifida. Tell us a little
3: about him. So I have three kids again. So I, uh, my youngest is chance and um, he was born about 10 years ago. Um, his birthday is in February. And um, so he's 10 and a half. And um, we learned halfway through the pregnancy that he would be born with spina bifida. It's usually usually something that you find out during your pregnancy when you go through prenatal testing. And um, it was a really tough experience for us because um, as a lot of you know, when you get an adverse diagnosis, um, doctors are obligated to give you all of your options. And um, we were given the option to um, to terminate, we weren't pressured or anything, but we were given all of our options. We were also um, given the option to explore fetal surgery, which at the same time was, um, it was in trial. So it wasn't it wasn't something you could just sign up for and go get, um, but they basically, um, you know, offered to do surgery during the pregnancy while you're still pregnant. Um, we did not opt to do that. Um, it, again, it was still in trial. Not everybody qualifies for that. Um, but spina bifida is a birth defect, and it's something that um, is a very complex medical condition where um, the spinal cord does not fully form, and so our son basically was born with a hole in his back. Um, We definitely consider termination. It's really hard not to want to give up when you get told all of the worst possible outcomes. Um, We were sent home with really outdated resources and basically a long list of at least ten to twenty different things that were um, really, really bad things. It did not sound great when you hear things like your child may never walk.
1: Yeah, that's really tragic.
3: Your your, your child may be brain damaged. They they may not. Um, they may not talk. They may not be able to breathe on their own. Um, a lot of these are really rare things that happen with spina bifida but it's still a possibility in like maybe five to 10% of the cases where they may need a trach or they may need a feeding tube. Um, and so for a mother you know, who just wants a perfect baby, again, I'm a newborn photographer. Um, I do nothing but <laughs> perfect baby pictures is the way I see it. Every baby's perfect in my eyes. And um, the moment you hear a doctor say, your child may need a wheelchair, they may need braces. They may need crutches um, they may need a a lot of help. They may need to go through a lot of therapies. Um, they may, they may need to have a lot of surgeries. It's extremely scary. Um, so we really, we spent three weeks debating our options. Um, I even had one of my best friends and I love her to death. She told me that she would probably give up if she was in my shoes because her own mother had spina bifida. And so I really, truly almost gave up. Um, we spent three weeks, I actually blogged through our experiences. Um, my blog's still up. <laughs> it's really archaic and old. I haven't deleted it because I want to archive all of my stories, but we did blog through all of it and, um, or I did. And um, I did even pull people because I don't know if you guys have faced this during a pregnancy, getting an adverse diagnosis, but for me, everybody, everybody, everybody avoided me like the plague it's like most people did not want to tell me. I've had people tell me to my face. I'm not so sure I want to tell you what I would do because I don't want you to feel bad or I don't want you to take it personal. And I don't want you to make a decision based off of what I would do. And so um, I got to a point where I actually did a poll on my blog and asked everybody what they would do. Would you go to full term and have your baby? Would you consider, consider fetal surgery or would you give up on your baby and just, you know, that's kind of the way they say, just give up and you can start over and then it's easier. Um, and you can escape all of the hardship that you might face in life. And, you know, it was a, it was almost an even split right across the board. And from that moment forward, I started getting emails from my, my family, from friends, from colleagues, from, um, it just started an open dialogue. And what I found was, I wouldn't say all of our family and friends, but a lot of our family—they openly started to tell us, "I don't know how you're going to do this. That just sounds too hard." Or even some of our family that have a medical background—they, you know—they were just straightforward and open and honest and said, "Look, I don't know how I would catheterize a child. A lot of children with spina bifida require things like catheters. They require things like, um, you know, bathroom procedures to help them go pee and poop." Um, you know, all the the fun stuff that us moms like to deal with to help our kids. You know, that's probably Mm -hmm. the hardest part of this journey is some of that stuff you don't really get to talk about openly. And so, um, you know, what I discovered was family were okay with us giving up. But the people that weren't okay with me giving up, majority of them were the ones that had a child with spina bifida. And they were really, really fierce advocates. Um, I have mothers that offered to adopt chance (laughs) They're some of my best friends right now. That's amazing. I had one mother, her name's Colleen Payne, and she's a, a huge advocate in our community and somebody I, I completely adore. We're actually going up to see her next month or in October. Um, and she is one of probably the most influential people in not just my life, but most people that get a newly diagnosed um, or, or are new, newly diagnosed with a child with spina bifida they somehow cross paths with her and she is like kind of like the mother hen of all of us mothers and gives that advice that's like you need to go see a neurosurgeon or you need to go see a fetal surgery center and get all the good advice and on the day that we were supposed to see our neurosurgeon, um, Keena Johnson is our neurosurgeon here in Orlando and she's um, probably one of the biggest blessings in this entire journey. She um, She's the person we met with that gave us hope And she was able to tell us because she cares with tons of children with spina bifida, she was able to basically tell us that he was gonna be okay. And his diagnosis, although it was, it's considered the most severe type of spina bifida, it was the best type of outcome for what she understands about spina bifida. And that, yeah, he's gonna face challenges, but these kids are happy. Even if they're in wheelchairs, these kids can learn. These kids are loved. And, you know, she was able to tell me those things in that appointment. And on that day that I went to see her, I basically had mind mapped and I'm a creative. So I design and do things, you know, by, I don't know if you guys have seen my mind maps page, but, um, I, I mind map through big decisions and through big things in life. And so for me, that's probably the most important and influential decision I've ever had to make in my life was whether or not I would continue my son's life. And on one page, I I mind mapped everything that I felt, pros and cons, if I kept them, and everything that would happen if I gave up. And both of those decisions were incredibly tough because both had both really positive and really negative things that just sounded so scary. Um, But on that day, Colleen did create a worldwide day of prayer and she shared it on Facebook, it was like an event and we ended up having which she shared it with me but you know she didn't say my name and who it was for but everybody knew it was for me um because i was going to see dr johnson that day to talk about chance and there were thousands of people around the country and around the world really people in other countries were joined it too um praying for chance and um we did decide to continue and from that point forward you know i've been telling his story and sharing it and um he's now 10 and a half he's went through 19 surgeries, 11 of it. That is a large number. Yeah. It's, I, I look back now and, you know, the things the doctor told me the day that we were diagnosed, I wouldn't say everyone's true, but majority of them have come true. So, So, um, he's had 19 surgeries. The first surgery was to close his back because if they don't close his back, um, it causes further damage to the nerves. And then, um, he could essentially have gotten an infection like meningitis that essentially could have ended his life. You know, if you look back in the history of you know the treatment of spina bifida, 50 to 100 years ago, they didn't treat babies with spina bifida. They didn't close their back and most of them would die of meningitis um, or infections related to it. Um, even in the That's... 80s, like page the the, our age in the 80s and 90s, there's a law back then that they, they, um, and it was very unethical. I think they've, you know, they've since changed this law and the Spina Bifida Association was a huge influence in this, but um, the doctors used to feel back when I was a baby, (laughs) you know, if, if I had had Spina Bifida or one of, you know, our loved ones had Spina Bifida, they would not treat them. And if they made it past that, then after the first year or whatever period of time, then they would say, you're, you're strong enough to survive now, we'll take care of you. But if that's not, then they, would, they, they would be left to die. And it's, you know, that was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, um, that's just but-
1: mind blowing to me. Well, and then I even think about some of the laws in place now for people with disabilities, when it comes to like, do they get to be chosen for organ transplants and things like that? Like those are laws that are still in place even today, which just blows my mind, honestly.
3: Yeah. And who gets to make these decisions on which person's quality of life is, is better or stronger. So, you know, in my eyes, um, he has completely changed, you know, how I view things like disability and even working with kids in education and even my own students. And, you know, he's completely changed our life in terms of all of the opportunities that he's had or that he's brought to our family that would have never happened like he got to make a wish when he was seven and got to meet John Cena we got to actually like hang out with John Cena for you know 20 minutes and see a a raw match would lose
0: his mind Ferdinand (laughs) is his favorite movie right now and he like recognizes John Cena's voice he loves the movie Ferdinand
3: one of his favorite rest or one of his favorite wrestlers is John Cena of course but like when he was two, he, he was almost nonverbal. He barely said any words, just, you know, maybe 10 or 20 at the max His one of his first words was Sina, 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 Sina. So, you know, one day he said, he wanted to meet him, and That's then cute. somebody said, just apply for make a wish. He's, he should qualify because his shunt in his head is his biggest risk right now to his life, you know, and then some of his other health issues are, are definitely a big consideration, but he's got hydrocephalus. So probably I'll be honest that the scariest thing, um, you know, when we were first diagnosed, the spina bifida stuff's scary. Like the the fact that he might be in a wheelchair. When you first hear that, you're thinking I'm having a baby in a wheelchair is coming out of my uterus, you know, that like, it's (laughs) that scary. Yeah. But the wheelchair is not the scary part of this diagnosis. I can tell you right now, he's got a box wheelchair and he is so athletic and he does wheelies and tricks and it's the coolest part of him sometimes because he's embraced it and it's like an extension of his body the scariest part for us has been on this journey has been his shunt and so he has fluid because of his spina bifida we all have csf fluid or cerebral spinal fluid and it goes up and down our spine to our brains and that's how we function like that's how we learn because that fluid helps us helps our brain work and in spina bifida it builds up in your head not always. I think it's something like eighty or ninety percent of patients, um, and that's always changing because they're doing fetal surgery and things. You know, are always, you know, changing with medical care and stuff. But it's it's very common with spina bifida, and we knew early on that he had it, and he had to get a shunt at one week old. So this little teeny oh, wow. tiny baby, I've got a picture of him the day he came out of shunt surgery, and he's got all these tubes, and you see, you know, just on his head. The, the shunt, it just looked so big on a brand new newborn. Um, and it, it was pretty scary that first year because he had, in the first eight months of life, 11 surgeries, and eight of those yeah. were shunt related. And so basically, it's a device that drains fluid from his head to his belly. And mm-hmm. so, if he didn't have that device before they invented it like 40 or 50 years ago, they used to die of brain damage or they would they would live sometimes and they would just be so cognitively delayed and their heads would be really big. A lot of the children in Africa and some of the third world countries that don't get the the advantage of treatment, you could Google hydrocephalus and it's scary. Their heads get huge like aliens. Um, And so like for a newly diagnosed mom, what's the first thing we do? I don't know if you did this page with for Down syndrome, but we Google, right? We go to Dr. Google.
1: Yep which for is the dangerous. Worst do.
3: The worst How thing I tell parents is- don't Google, don't Google. Oh, Google. How dangerous is it for down syndrome though? Do you get good pictures at least? No, Not-
0: you
1: get pictures that are like from the 1800s. It looks like, well, and I was going to piggyback off what you said earlier, because I-, I think Paige and I both having children with down syndrome can relate with you in such an intense way as well when we, and I know the doctors have to share the risks. They have to tell you all the things that could potentially go wrong. But what's so sad is that they don't share any of the possible joys They, you know, like I'm going to get emotional, but I still remember my doctor did push for abortion and he shared all the things that my child was never going to do. And Mm -hmm. I remember just looking in the eye and I'm like, please don't tell me what my child's going to do because you don't know. Like, you don't know, you can tell me the possible risks, but you don't know what my child is going to be capable of. And he stopped bugging me after that. Like He left left us alone, but, you know, finding families that are in your shoes or have been there are going to be the people that are going to be able to share real life with you now, present today and what it looks like. And so I just can relate with you big time, you know, in that that means of finding that family that had a child with spina bifida and she could, you know, she could advocate in that way and tell you like, yeah, there's going to be struggles and these are going to be hardships, but there's also going to be joy along the journey.
3: Right. And I think it's overwhelming for sure when you you get those connections to families, because sometimes you see those happy stories, but I think, you know, overall the biggest things that frustrated me were that I I couldn't guarantee which version of spina bifida I was going to get. And, you know, there's several different versions, but usually if you find out during pregnancy, you have the most severe version. And so it's like, oh my God, this is the most severe version. It's going to be bad. It's going to be really, really horrifying and bad. Um, Mm -hmm. But among that, even with the most severe version, you're never gonna know until that baby's born and shows you what he or she can or can't do. Yeah. And so for, for me, that's been the the biggest thing when new families come on board is just like you said, when they come and ask me what Spina bifida is like, I'd happily tell you all the the, the tough stuff we've been through. But right. I wanna tell you, chance can swim better than most kids his age. <laughs> he loves to do WCMX, which is like wheelchairs at a skate park and he likes to go <laughs> up and down <laughs> ramps.
0: I love and it. And he
3: loves sled hockey and he loves he just learned how to water ski like adaptive water ski um he loves to play basketball like he is just an outgoing kid he loves math but he does have some learning disability things that we have to worry about but he has a love for learning and a love for video games and he's a normal kid really it's not like we don't think about spina bifida every day Right. So, yeah,
0: when when I was pregnant with Tristan, I had a lot of minor issues that looking back they were huge red flags and we missed them the whole way. Um but then when everything hit the wall at 30 weeks when I had polyhydramnios and everything, they Tristan had I think it was eight different issues that they could see at the MFM's office and then she said, "Oh, by the way, he has um fetal hydrops too." Um, so he could very well be stillborn. And to me, that was like the moment where I was like, that was like the make it or break it moment for me and gay, because at that point I'm like, I just want to meet him. I don't care about any of this other stuff. Like, I just want to meet my baby. Like, I don't want you to take him from me. I don't want him to be taken away from me. I just want to meet my baby and hold him in my arms and hear his little cry. That's all I want at that point. So, when the doctors start telling, you know, stuff like what they told Steffi and you, I just feel like, you know, you, they haven't met your baby yet. Yes. That could all come true, but you haven't met that baby yet. You have no idea how, if all those surgeries are happening, like, how is he going to come on on the other end of it? Like chance seems so like perfectly happy to me. And you would never yeah. guess that he went through all this stuff because those doctors never met him. They didn't know I mean, like the resiliency and the support that he would I was have. about to
3: say, these kids are resilient. And this kid, so, right before his 11th surgery, I remember we were in the hospital for 10 days waiting for the next shunt because they had to let his head heal. And, like, I'm photographing him every day, huge smiles. He'd pop his pacifier in his mouth, make a room full of doctors laugh, you know. And you're thinking, oh, poor baby, he's got to have another surgery. He was the happiest kid, and he'd have tubes coming out of his head just, you know, waiting for that next shunt. You know, we just learned this week he's got to have a 20th surgery and mm. he's got an orthopedic issue going on and it hit me it's like that's 20 20 surgeries he's only 10 no yeah. child should have to go through 20 surgeries but he's resilient so let me tell you what he did this week at therapy that's like okay i feel so pity party with for my son he's got to have another surgery right we're in surgery and he go or not surgery we're in therapy and he goes so i think i want to have my my surgery around christmas Let's do it around Christmas and I'm thinking why in the world would you like we're thinking end of year start of next year after our fall craziness is over Christmas he wants to do surgery at Christmas he's resilient for sure he's smart too. Do you know what they do at hospitals at Christmas time? Yes, they spoil the kids there. They spoil the kids. He is the smartest kid in the universe because he knows he was get spoiled rotten by a bunch of people at the hospital. If he's in the hospital at Christmas, that's funny. And yeah, it, he's just yeah, the coolest kid. That's he's funny.
0: like, let's go at Christmas so I can get like 12 different double presents presents. on one day. <laughs> that's I funny. mean, it's true, it's true though. Our hospitals here in Orlando, um, they are are none to spoiling the kids. They really do.
3: Yeah. So as they should. He,
0: he, knows, he knows what's
3: up. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I thank you for sharing Chance's story and the diagnosis and how all of that went. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you went back to school to learn how to manage the nonprofits. Can you tell everybody yeah. a little bit about how that all started?
3: So, you know, before Chance was born, I was actually going to school at SCAD. I'm a graphic design professor at Valencia and I was working on a master's. I got about a year in and went through a candidacy review process and was about to restart and do the second year of the program. And then literally the diagnosis happened right before, like literally it was all like in that same week or two time period. And I just stopped I said, this is not the right time. God's redirected me to do something else. I can't focus on a master's degree at the same time as having a baby with such a complex condition. Um, and I completely stopped. And I, you know, for years I had a lot of regret and it never continued, you know, as an educator, I just, I kind of feel obligated to have at least the master's degree, um, feel really blessed to be able to teach with less than a master's. But at the same time, I just felt that it was necessary. And um you know, there was one day, and I think it was 2018, actually, um, sitting at commencement at Valencia, watching my own students graduate, just the feeling of being at commencement is just, it's an honor to be there, and I just was like, I think I need to start a master's, so I had started Redefining Spina Bifida. the end of 2014, we came together as a group, and by May 2015 was when we were officially founded as a 501c3. A lot of momentum. We have a lot of uh, strong following online with um, the spina bifida community and just a really passionate community behind us and a lot of passionate volunteers. But what I've discovered is that it is extremely hard and challenging to lead a nonprofit if you don't know anything about what it takes to lead a (laughs) 501c3 and so I went in kind of you know knowing that I'm one of those people that's a go-getter and can do things and I did a lot of self-learning to get to that point to start the nonprofit, and a lot of things that were learned along the way those first few years but I really truly felt as though I needed to learn more and I needed to learn from experts and so That day at commencement, just something lit a fire in me. And then the next thing you know, I, you know, that next week I was applying for UCF. They have a um, nonprofit management school uh, degree and master's program at UCF that um, I looked into. I love learning online. I teach online. I'm such a self-starter. I'm one of those ones that, although I'd love to learn in class and in person, um, I have three kids and I do 500 million other things. I need to just get right to the point and learn what I need to learn and move on and so I, I I did that with SCAD too like I I learn at a rapid pace I if I want to learn something I can learn it really really fast um and so I basically started in the fall of 2018 um and just basically about two years time period finished a master's degree in nonprofit management and um I won't say I've learned everything I need to know as a nonprofit leader, but it was an amazing foundation to help me understand, you know, the, the things I need to know as a leader. And you know, some of my favorite things I learned: um, fundraising, all the things that make me a great fundraiser. You know, mm-hmm. I did a whole research paper on social media and Facebook fundraising. I've yeah. done case studies um, on various nonprofits, which was amazing. I got to actually. Work with Down Syndrome Association of Central Florida, um, very cool, and then the Spina Bifida Association and one or two others, and just basically get to study certain components of nonprofit management, like for instance, volunteer management. It's great to have volunteers, but yeah. there's a whole dynamic behind understanding what motivates volunteers yeah. and how to keep them interested and keep them engaged and keep them you know, happy, so they continue to serve your organization. And probably my favorite class, honestly, was strategic planning. And during that class, we were able to create a strategic plan for redefining spina bifida. In a small group, we got to work with um, a few students that were really amazing that worked alongside me and helped me develop their first strategic plan um, and grant writing and just so many different great things. Um, along the way, I still attend things over at rollins they've got a great philanthropy center over there the edith bush philanthropy center and you can just take a workshop and learn a lot about nonprofit management and how to you know stay involved in the community
1: well it sounds like you have your hands full so you do photography you own a nonprofit you are a mom to three kiddos um so how do you do it all? How do you manage your nonprofit, a professor, a photographer, mom life and still be involved in the community? What's your secret?
3: I don't know. I've got to <laughs> I've got to say I don't really know the secret <laughs> to it other than I I am very driven and blessed. I have an amazing husband who supports everything that I do. Um, Sometimes he might grumble at me if I do too much, and remind me to come back um, to to circle back with my family and make sure we're doing stuff. But we do a lot as a family. Like yesterday, we went to Down Syndrome's kickoff, and I photographed their kids, and my my kids were with me, and they got yeah. the party. They actually got to win some prizes, and we're super excited. Oh, too. Awesome! Um, so it was, and I'm, that's the first time I've brought them since I mean, since my niece was a little baby. We haven't been to the walk as a family in many years since she's been. Um, So, you know, there are times that my family is very heavily involved with me so that we, you know, continue to give back as a family as well. But, you know, for me, it's just I, I if I can be honest with you, I feel as though God has blessed us all with certain talents and things that we are good at. I love to design. I love to teach. That's my career, That's my job. Mm-hmm. That's what pays my salary and makes sure that my family's taken care of and you know offers me the benefits to make sure we're doing well. My photography, honestly, mostly is a gift. I like to say that I do it for fun and money. <laughs> but I'll be honest, yeah. most of what I do for photography is nonprofit, although I do you know, paid sessions. Um, if I showed you my my bank account versus my bank account that's inside my heart, <laughs> more of it's giving back. More yeah. of it's being given back. Like it's paying my heart more than it's paying my bank account right now. So I will be honest, a lot of the work that I do, I end up um, you know, in hospitals next to some of these kids with medical conditions. Most of them have spina bifida, but you know, I do volunteer with a lot of organizations. One of them is, you know, Spina bifida association, redefining spina bifida, um, Down Syndrome Association. Um, I also have volunteered with like, now I lay me down to sleep. That
0: one, that one's a tearjerker.
3: It is, you know, but I can tell you right now, that is probably one of the organizations that has helped my heart the most. I don't know if Mm -hmm. you guys have ever lost a baby, but I've had three miscarriages. And I, I really, truly think God drives us to do certain things. For me, it was after a third miscarriage, being in the hospital alone, waking up in the middle of the night and I still remember having a dream about my mother, and I hadn't written her through a month's battle of three surgeries and a hospitalization, and she uh, she finally wrote me that night, and like I just cried, and I was like, God's telling me it's time to volunteer. I was a brand new photographer and just knew I wanted to give back, and that was the day I had the courage to sign up, and um, it sounds very scary to go into a room when a mother loses a baby and photograph that baby. Yeah. But that is the only moment that they have with that baby and they will treasure it for a lifetime. Yeah. And probably the most touching work I've ever done has been alongside some of those families. So I, I love to give back. I, I feel like it drives my heart. Um, I think my family's a huge influence in why I'm able to do as much as I do. They're huge supporters of me. Um, they definitely circle back and let me know when I need to come back home and do fun stuff. Hey mom, I love that you're helping the world, but come back. (laughs) I think it's, I think uh, another thing that drives me and makes sure, you know, I, I'm so like OCD about to-do lists and mind maps and things that keep me on track. I would never be able to do as much as I do if I didn't. Okay, so
0: Real quick, we're gonna need you to do another episode and talk about organization because that is <laughs> sure, a huge anytime. part of this special needs mom life that I know so many people, so many moms, like they struggle with because they're juggling so many different plates, multiple kids, multiple needs, multiple jobs, and then I've got, you know, you guys
3: think I'm crazy, but I've got I've got a to do list for a to do list, and then I've got mind maps to help me through every decision and big moment in life, and then google calendars is my life oh my child (laughs) and and person in my life has a google calendar shared calendars (laughs) shared calendars and then i've got um i've got a skylight calendar on my counter i don't know if you guys have heard of those but Mm -hmm. at any point anybody in my family can go look at the skylight calendar and say oh mom's got to take chance to therapy or dad's got a doctor's appointment or you know skylight it's about 100 to 150 dollars, and i won't say it's a perfect device but it just sits on your countertop and you sync your calendars and like you can see anything that anybody in your family's got to do and so at any point that's probably been one of the biggest challenges over the years is you know when we're so busy and going so many places if you're not communicating to everybody yeah you know if my husband doesn't know i have a photo shoot And then he wants to do something, you know, we might get in a disagreement or we might say, why didn't you tell me? Um, You know, just that communication and coming back to one another. So um, I think it's important for us to make time for ourselves as mothers and as, you know, if you're in a career and career professionals. um, For me, my big go to outside of staying super hyper organized to stay on top of all these different things is I've learned that I have to make time for myself, number one, to rest. Number two, number two, I need to keep my butt active. I've got a child who is physically disabled, who at some point I might need to lift when he gets bigger, which I hope I don't. I want to keep him independent, but what if I do? So I have to stay active. And for me, it's been Peloton. Like I had before we had COVID this past month, I had a sixty or seventy day streak going.
1: Nice. And like
3: it was like super exciting. And now I'm like I have to restart it. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, if like I'm starting over. Out, yeah. If I'm not working out. I feel worse. Or if yeah. I'm not eating healthy, I feel worse. And so just yes. kind of keeping all of those self care things on check is super important for me.
1: I vouch for that. I actually just started going back to the gym like two months ago, and it. I just feel like a totally new person. I broke my ankle while I was pregnant with oh, no. my second baby. Yeah. So, and it was like this year recovery. I snapped my fibula. Um, but I, I we mean, all I just couldn't- virtually signed a picture
0: of her cast. It was really cute. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah.
1: But so I was pregnant and couldn't walk. Um, went to like rehab and all that stuff, but I was an avid exerciser prior to that accident. And so for me, I just felt like I was in such a slump. And so I agree with that big time, like self-care is so important, taking time to just, even if it's just going for a walk, but giving yourself that chance to get some exercise in. I just feel like a totally new person. All right. So
0: Can you tell us a little about how spina bifida has affected your family, like your husband, your kids, um, and what has been some of the biggest challenges? I'm assuming that one would be surgery, but maybe like everyday life, what would be some of the biggest challenges in everyday life?
3: You know, if I can be honest, that the biggest challenge for me in having a child with spina bifida is the uncertainties. So I can't tell you whether or not next week we're going to be in a surgery or whether something else medical happens, like sometimes they get urinary tract infections or um, the, you know, the bowel and bladder stuff is a big deal in the spina bifida community. And you don't normally get to talk about that out loud. Like I can tell you if Chance is going to be in a surgery or, you know, if we got to be in physical therapy, we can talk openly about that, but I can't tell you if he's having, you know, that type of stuff with bathroom mm-hmm. stuff out loud as easily unless we're just kind of on a personal level and it's kind of one of those things you you don't want to necessarily talk too outwardly because you know he's got his own identity and things like that and uh, that's you know the uncertainties and then the the really personal stuff that like it affects us and it hits, hits us um is is a big influence in how we feel and um you know definitely one of those things that just it, it does affect us um, you know, for me, the other thing is I am a big, you know, supporter and um, encourager in trying to figure out how we make sure this child of ours that has a disability becomes the most independent child as he gets older. So we all want to protect our babies and do everything for them to support them. But sometimes over protecting them keeps them from becoming independent as they get older. So, you know, helping him learn how to do everything independently. You know, how to transfer out of his wheelchair, how to self-catheterize, how to do all these bathroom stuff that, like, he can't do everything on his own. Some of these things he has learned how to do independently, but some That's of them incredible. he hasn't. And then just something simple like putting shoes on. Mm-hmm. He can put his braces on now. Yeah. Sometimes he needs a little bit of help, but putting shoes on is a lot harder for him. Um, how to tie his shoes, he still hasn't mastered that. Um, fine motor for him has been really difficult even just like handwriting Um, and just learning like things as he gets older like I want him to know how to drive he has the cognitive ability to I want him to be able to drive when he gets older I want him to know that he can get a job and just you know learning how to guide him through those steps making sure we're there to be advocates for him Um, in terms of how it's affected our family um, it's been hard but it's not impossible. Um, Early on, I definitely remember that first year. I mean, there were times that my family felt as though I was overreacting with my mommy instincts. I don't know if you guys have mommy instincts with your babies. I'm sure you do. But I definitely do. my, My family and my doctors know, or his doctors know, that my mommy instincts are very rarely wrong. And so, you know, me and his neurosurgeon and some of his at the hospital, we are connected through cell phone we've been through that much that they they have given us their personal info so that we can connect with them if we're ever in urgent situations and I mean I've been in the situation the first year with his neurosurgeon where I I remember texting her at 4 a.m saying I think something's wrong and we ended up in an ER and in a shunt surgery type situation or she gives us peace of mind and tells us otherwise but a lot of the times my mommy instincts early on were right. And we had family, even my own husband was like, don't overreact. Yeah. He's fine. He's fine. Even still today. Like if I, if I say something, he tries to be the one to calm me down. And say, he's okay. He's okay. And then if mommy instincts keep raging through, then it's like, okay, maybe you're right. Let's just go get him checked out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the uncertainties, the stress, um, I think sometimes some of those care things that he needs, um, it does weigh on the family but I think overall as a family we've learned that you know we've got to work together to make sure he's supported and I feel really blessed because you know one of my biggest worries before he was born was how are his siblings going to take this his brother Hope or his, his brother Jalen and his sister Hope um, were our biggest blessings before he arrived and I was so worried that we were going to create this big huge burden on them that would make them hate life or would make them feel worse or like their lives weren't as good as it was before he was born and you know I think every mother that has a child with disability has that fear of are they going to be mad at me or are they going to be sad or how are they going to feel and it turned into they are among his biggest advocates his biggest cheerleaders they're there to support him in a heartbeat and it's been a blessing and so I think You know, overall it's, you know, has it been hard on us? Has it created family stress? Yes, but it's in many ways brought us closer together.
1: Yeah. Um, So are there any specific resources that you would like to see more of in the spina bifida community?
3: So the biggest resource I think that there is a need for right now um, is the prenatal diagnosis resources, which I'm actually on sabbatical from Valencia. Um, for an entire semester to focus on that's that's what I pitched as my passion project to work on and devote my time Um, and I'm working closely with our redefining spina bifida team as well as with um, a lot of the volunteers and the team that works with spina bifida association to see how we can bring some of these visions and dreams that I've had and some of the other moms have had to reality Um, right now in the world of spina bifida, there are not very many resources. Um, it's nothing like down syndrome where you've got a huge layer of resources like letter case and down syndrome pregnancy and all of those different things. There's, there's really not a lot. And so like SBA has an info sheet, which is all text. Um, a lot of the organizations are very, very cautious to even touch anything that has to do anything with a diagnosis because they are worried about crossing ethical lines about um, pushing people in one direction or the other and our our decision is way harder than any other decision there is for diagnosis because your choices are and and they share all the choices your choices are postnatal surgery after the baby's born fetal surgery which is super super common these days because it's no longer in trial and in fetal surgery there's three different versions now hmm. so there's open fetal surgery where they go in and you know it's like a c-section and they repair just, the back
1: that blows my mind that that's even possible <laughs> well there's
3: a fetus there's a
1: fetoscopic version
3: where they do it minimally invasive which there's some pros and cons to that which, yeah you know it you could possibly have your baby normally versus through a C-section that way. And the recovery for the mother's a little bit easier. Usually, I don't wanna say always. And then there's a new version, which is fetoscopic. I believe it's fetoscopic with stem cells, what I think I've heard, and that one's in trial. And then there's, you know, termination, which, you know, that's, I think, two thirds of the babies with spina bifida um, in the U.S. That's, and this is an approximate number based off of some studies are aborted. And so about, if you think about, um, you know, going forward with diagnosis, about two thirds of those babies um, are, are that's being about aborted. The, that's about the same for Down syndrome as well in the US. Mm-hmm. And then the last option is adoption. And a lot of the times the parents don't even get told that that's even an option. They don't even think about it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I do feel as though the resources are lacking. I feel as though the laws are nowhere near what they are for Down syndrome. I think yeah. that you guys have had a lot more um, people involved in legal and political movements that has caused you guys to propel a lot of your resources further than we have. And I think that the if the community just has to figure out how we put a dent in it because there are yeah. a lot of um, needs for our families because they're sent home empty handed. We're very, very blessed that there's now at least fetal surgery. Um, And as much as that's an option, it's a huge risk. A lot of times those babies are born prematurely. They oftentimes still have a lot of the same challenges. They might have some improved outcomes, but not always. And so um, the big benefit to that though is the evaluation. When you have a child with spina bifida, um, if you get to a fetal surgery center, you get to meet with the experts that are taking care of people that have spina bifida, the babies and the, the kids. And so they know their stuff and they can tell these families a, a more accurate prognosis and a, they can help them understand the diagnosis better than you know a general OBGYN or an MFN that maybe doesn't know a lot about the condition. And so um, the, the biggest blessing is if they can get to those centers, I don't want to say always, but a lot of the times they have more support. I think the other thing that's lacking is, and you guys, I think you mentioned it earlier, Steffi, is um, the fact that probably one of the biggest assets to every single family that gets a diagnosis is the community resources. So the yeah. the local chapters, the, the the national chapters, but also the families, why mm-hmm. can't we make sure every single person that gets a diagnosis gets personally connected to another yeah. family in your local community that has a similar diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. So that, so that, that kind of leads us into
0: absolutely. That kind of leads us into our next question. Um, I, we both thought it was really sorry. Hold on, both. I'm gonna pretend like Sarah's here, so delete that. <laughs> We all thought it was really important to ask what you want to say to families listening who may be dealing with a spina bifida diagnosis or expecting a child with spina bifida.
3: I think the easiest thing to say, just point blank, is that it's going to be okay. And to trust the journey you're on. um, To go forward and uh, make sure that you get the most accurate information. Um, I usually encourage families, even if they don't want to do fetal surgery, I can tell you for my, my case, I, I felt it was too risky because of my history, but I still, that's the one thing I regret is not going through with that evaluation process because it's probably the most thorough time that you're going to be able to get the information that helps you understand what spina bifida is. And so getting to those specialists that care for children with spina bifida, so that you can get the most information. I hope in time that we have these resources so that they get something tangible or that there's a website so that instead of going to Dr. Google, you can go to, you know, maybe it's Spina Bifida Pregnancy. I don't know what the name of the website's gonna be yet, Um, but I do hope we have resources for them at some point. But if they can get to see those experts and then also connect with the Spina Bifida community I really truly think a lot more families would not give up and I'm yeah. not one to decide or judge a family if they do decide to give up. But I do feel as though a lot of the times families just trust the doctors. And so if mm-hmm. your doctor says, Oh no, 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 you gotta, you gotta just stop and give up now. It's just too bad. You can restart and have another baby. You're going to trust your doctor over, Right. Other people. I've had newly diagnosed families that have terminated that have turned to me because I've blogged so openly and because I lead this organization. And they have flat out told me, I will not trust you over my doctor because the doctor is the expert here. Um, And a lot of the times, those people are in other countries like Australia, New Zealand, UK, where the termination rates are a little bit higher. Um, but I will tell you that it is extremely hard for me when I hear people tell me after they've terminated. Yeah, um, I've had families a month or two out reach out and email me and say, "I, I just, I just read your story, and I wish I would have read it before I gave up, because I feel yeah. like I'm living like we have the same story, but I'm on the other path, um, and it's yeah. kind of eerie for me because it kind of makes yeah. me feel like that's what life would have been like yeah that's that's what life would have been like and um it it is unfortunate but i do think you know we all make decisions and we all make you know choices based off of the information we're provided and so for any newly diagnosed family that is listening i would say make sure you go see the experts that take care of babies with spina bifida you get the most information and then number two connect with the community because if you can connect with other families and see what life is like with spina bifida and ask questions and talk to them, a lot of the times it's going to be helpful. Um, one of the most helpful things to me was meeting a family when I was pregnant and getting to see another child with spina bifida. And yeah. it's like, you see them it's like, oh, just a kid. Okay. Cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, but- yeah, maybe they have a limp or they, you know, maybe they're in a wheelchair, but they're they're technically a normal child they just they do things a little bit differently yeah so it 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 will help them understand that it's going to be okay if they connect with the community
1: that was the same for my husband and I we got the opportunity to meet a couple from our church that someone had set us up with and they had a 13 year old son with down syndrome so they were quite a bit further along the journey um but my husband and I were both like really in our fields at the time and I just remember leaving and my husband looks at me and he goes, he was so cool. (laughs) Like he just, we loved (laughs) having conversation with him. And he just was like, he was a really cool kid, like just a totally different perspective than what the doctors Mm -hmm. are giving you. So I definitely agree with that for any diagnosis, not just spina bifida or down syndrome, you know, whatever it may be. I know it might be harder for some of those rare diagnoses, but, um, if you're able to connect with someone and I wish doctors would include that for any parent that is getting some sort of prenatal diagnosis like that or even postnatal that they have like a system where they can connect you with a family like a buddy system almost even just a phone call you and know, i've like been somebody- suggesting
3: things like mentoring programs but i think you know i think a lot of the medical teams are overwhelmed with how much work they have to do you know, yeah. outside of, you know, caring for your child, like things we don't get to see, like the right the EMR the systems paperwork. that they use. Yeah. The, yeah the admin. But even for
1: and, us, we had a social worker come to ours. And I feel like that could be like something with like the social work that they do. Like they have the system, you know, like not necessarily put it on the medical workers that are um, doing all that, but maybe it's like, or I when think a lot of it is also our
3: advocacy as parents, you know, involved in the community. So I do feel as though, I've been very blessed to be highly connected to our medical teams and our families. Mm -hmm. And so I've been in the NICU and I've been at Arnold Palmer and I've been, you know, inside of the hospital room so much that, you know, if they can connect me, then I'm in there in a heartbeat. The hard part is, you know, getting them to connect me. So a lot of it is, you know, you staying connected within that community if you want to be doing this type of work. It's that's the challenge—is how many people well, are that committed and, and, and volunteers. You can't,
1: you can't force a family to go meet somebody. I mean, giving them no. that opportunity of like, hey, here's the family. If you're ready to reach out to them, whenever our social worker basically did. That's awesome. Well, <laughs> I also Tristan- I didn't want to talk to anyone about Down syndrome for months. Mm -hmm. Like, don't don't talk to me.
3: You put up a big wall.
1: I know. I I, did. I was, but once I was able to break it down, I was like, all right, I'm ready to meet a family. I'm ready to talk, but it was on my terms and when I was ready. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it may scare people away doing that right off the bat, but giving them the opportunity of when you're ready here's this resource for you.
0: Yeah, so two things came up in my mind while I was listening to you guys speak just now. One is here in Orlando, we actually did start a medical outreach program that I was on for- I need to figure um, out how to get involved
3: in that because I want to do the same thing with spina
0: bifida. I need your contact. It kind of fizzled because we need parents that are A, involved, parents that actually have the time to do the work, Um, because it is volunteer work, right? Um, Unless we get the interns to do it, which is a whole other story. Um, But we came up with an idea of like passing out packets and using the resources that we had to print these packets to give it to the OB's office, the MFM's office, um, to let them know like here, you you might not like these are not um, super common diagnoses. So we could drop off like a set of 10. And then you can just literally hand this packet in addition to the scary stuff that you hand out. Hand this packet that parents that actually walk through this, you know, we we made this, hand this packet to them. So it'll have like um, the Welcome to Holland poem, which is what kind of inspired the Tulips in Tuscany um, podcast. And so things like that, that are more inspiring and uplifting, because these parents are going to be facing like the hard stuff, you know, that's without a doubt in the office, you're facing the hard stuff. So might as well sprinkle in a little joy and a little hope for them. Um, so we did do that and it fizzled out a little bit and then COVID. So it really fizzled out after COVID. Um, and then, um, the other thing I was talking, thinking about was how our social worker invited, um, the CEO of the Down syndrome association at the time, which was the day we got our results back, which it was crazy because as soon as I held Tristan's little feet in my hand and I saw that gigantic sandal gap, I knew like (laughs) in my head, it looked like a thumb, like it was huge. So I just like knew. And there's like a video with like a tear rolling down my cheek, like somebody was recording it. I don't know who, but it's in my phone. And it's one of like the most intimate moments where I could actually like, that captured the moment that I knew, which I never thought that could happen. But So the social worker that was there for all of that, she still knew it was the day we got our diagnosis. And she's like, so I invited her. She'll be here in like an hour or two. And she said, she'll wait (laughs) for you for like, you know, two hours or so. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? I don't want to meet with anybody. We just got the diagnosis. My world has officially been flipped upside down. We're still in the NICU. I don't know when we're getting out. I'm not meeting with some lady I've never met before. I don't care. Like I will not do it. And she's like, Oh, you'll be fine. Just, you know, you have two hours. She's just going to hang out. And I was like, Sue, I'm not going to be the jerk that like wastes somebody's afternoon. Like, that's horrible. So of course I like waited 45 minutes, mustered up my strength. And Gabe, of course was like, Mr. Chill. Like he was upset, but not like hyperventilating like I was. (laughs) So we actually went and met with her and I was praying for a sign from God the whole time. And then she said, so how old is Tristan? I said, oh, he's, oh gosh, I don't even know, like eight days old at this point. I'm not really sure. His birthday is January 11th. Her jaw hit the floor because her daughter Raquel, her birthday was also January 11th. So it was like God just like smacking me in the face. like, here's your sign. things are gonna be okay. Like I have my I'm sending angels along this journey, and things are gonna be fine. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna suck at times, but you have this beautiful baby, and things are gonna be okay. So, like, you know, forcing the mentoring, I think <laughs> am now a huge advocate for it. But in the moment, I wanted to pull my hair out. So I think we should I think we should push that the, the advocacy for mentorship. Absolutely.
3: For sure. I know, I know, we're definitely trying to work on it in the spina bifida community. I uh, We've been joking that we need a mom brigade because we need moms that are, you know, going to be on the side of the parents. And I think sometimes as parents, you know, when you hear people get the diagnosis, um, I, I know that I was judged. And, you know, when a family comes to the community looking for support and looking to, to get that you know, that TLC and that warm embrace, they're looking for hope. They're not looking to be judged. And so if they, if they're thinking about giving up, you know, I think the, the harder part for us is, you know, how we deal with our own trauma that we faced when they come to us, because Absolutely. they're going through the, their most traumatic time in their life. Um, it's probably going to be one of the most defining moments in their life and for us as a community knowing that these families entrust us with you know their hearts and sharing such personal information um, just knowing that you know these families may not really want to give up but i don't think any mother cannot think about that option as a possibility when you hear so many adverse issues that your child may have and so as a community i think our bigger challenge now is how can we help these families and how can we fiercely advocate for them and hopefully save these babies, but at the same time realize that it's not our decision to make. And at the end of the day, it's not our decision to judge them either. They've got to make a very tough, tough decision. I think all of us have been through it. It's so much nicer yeah. once you're on the other side. It of really, that it really
0: is. It really is. Once Tristan was here, and like I held him, like I had, you know, tears holding those little sandal gap toes in my hand. But you know, it's I would, I wouldn't trade having him for anything. Like just the way he is, all these hard days and running away at the park. And you know, he's running away at the park. We didn't think he would be able to do that. You know, he wasn't even holding his head up for like the first year of his life, basically. Um, So there's just like little things on the journey that I think, you know, I know spina bifida is much more complicated than what Steffi and I have been through, but I feel like no matter what journey you're on in the special needs mom life or special needs dad life, whoever's listening, um, there's always little, little things that give you hope. And I think it's so awesome what you guys are doing to advocate for the spina bifida community so that families know that, yeah, it can be hard, but you know, look at chance. He's happy. He loves his life. Yeah. and you love yeah, him.
3: <laughs> so you guys are, you guys named your podcast off of that Holland poem. I, I mentioned to you Paige, I have, um, uh, I think almost as good, if not a better poem that uh, it's not really a poem. It's more of a story, but it's, it, it is aligned with the Holland one. If, if you feel you have time to listen, um, I've got an amazing mother that I'm actually going to be visiting next week in Phoenix, Arizona. Chance and I are hey, going to That's playing. where I live really, are you
1: serious? Uh
3: I'm going to invite you to, I'm going to invite you. Yeah, seriously, I will. We are, Chance and I are going to be touring this fall um, to Mm -hmm. to go take photo shoots because I'm on sabbatical. He's in virtual school. We're going to go take photos of uh, a lot of these people that we've known over the years with spina bifida. I really Mm -hmm. need to make sure this kid gets to meet some of these moms that helped save his life. I honestly feel like they're a huge influence Um, so a lot of this work where I need to build photography, that's a diverse, um, perspective of our community and not just Florida families. Um, and we are going to go meet them. Um, but we, we have a, a a trip booked next week for Phoenix. And this mom just happens to be one of the moms that I'm going to be meeting next week. She has not just one child with spina bifida, she has two. So if you have a baby with spina bifida, there is a 4% chance that you may have a second child with spina bifida. She also happens to have a sister with spina bifida. So yes. she already knew what spina bifida was when she got her diagnosis, I think. And she's got a strong background in faith. Um, her name is um, Allison. I don't want to butcher her last names. So. <laughs> um, but I will um, let you guys know that she is a huge, huge um, voice um, in her Arizona community. She's got a, awesome. a website. Um, that she calls an upward reckoning. And then she's got a nonprofit that she um, started called Something So Worth It that actually is a first uh, responder for um, people with disabilities. They send out great things to families affected by disabilities. But she wrote something about six, five, six years ago, um, February 9th, 2015. Um, I began following her story because she was newly diagnosed. And she had her son Miles and um, he has spina bifida, but an extremely severe case of it to the point he's on a ventilator um, or a trach. Um, And then he also um, has feeding tube and some other conditions that um, I know she shares his story openly. And then a few years later, she had another boy named Caleb that um, is amazing. And he is also pretty severe, but not quite as severe as Miles she underwent fetal surgery, and um, wow. she shared his story pretty openly, but I do want to share this, she shared it on the Spina Bifida Associations page, I think a year or two ago, um, it's just a couple of paragraphs, but when you hear it, you're going to think of that Holland poem in a totally different way, so Holland makes you think, oh, everything's wonderful now that I have a child with, uh, you know, a disability, right, and you you have a different perspective on life, um, she's faced a lot of hardship and it's really that's when i read this to you this is kind of how i felt that first year of life when we went through surgeries and during some of the toughest moments um so it's named uh or it's titled if i were being honest i like to refer to it as the haiti poem or the haiti story it's really a story so it says many parents of special needs children share a poem by emily pearl it's really encouraging because it gives your path a new feeling and a new meaning. It just makes sense and states feelings in a way most of us cannot. We all want our life to be a trip to Italy. When we land in Holland, we have to appreciate the scenery. We have to watch people taking the trips to Italy while we learn to smell the tulips and build an appreciation for Holland. I was ready for the slower pace of Holland. I was ready to give up the dream of Italy. But how on earth did we end up in Haiti? I didn't read that anywhere in the poem. Bryce was her husband and I joked about our move to Haiti throughout this process. Joking is how we feel normal. But if I were to be honest with myself, Haiti is how this feels many mornings when I wake up and remember why my son is not home with me. As our plane departed for Italy, it took a detour to Holland. We looked out the airplane window down at the landscape of Holland and thought to ourselves, okay, we're fine with this. Let's stop here and we'll love it and never try to leave, we promise. But the plane flew over Holland and turned south. It kept flying and flying and flying. Where are we going? It's getting hot. We are getting uncomfortable. We are landing. Where are we landing? Say what? We're in Haiti. Oh hell's no! I did not, <laughs> not buy that ticket. It's harder to find the beauty in Haiti. Yeah, sure. There's beaches, but come on. The storm has taken its toll on the former white sand. The food is good, but it's too different and gives me a stomach ache. The people are courageous and welcoming, but they have suffering in their eyes. Am I a Haitian now? There is no return flight. Forget Italy. What I would give to have ended up in Holland. I get to find the beauty in the calloused, the broken, and the scraps of former homes left after the storm. As calluses smooth out, they become tougher and resilient. As our stomachs get used to the new tastes, they start to desire the cuisine and find ways to cook the food. As we tear through the roughage, we pick up the pieces of our old homes that meant something to us, and we build new homes. Haiti has guts. It has character. It has number one bestseller stories. Frankly, Italy and Holland couldn't last a day in Haiti, (laughs) and so, you know, it just, it puts into perspective, you know, that hardship that we face, and, you know, Holland's beautiful, and we've all felt that beauty of Holland, but, you know, nobody really Expected to go to Haiti and think it was worth the that visit. The, the hardship sometimes creates that guts and the
1: Yeah. I think that's such a good reminder, too, that everybody's journey is so different. You know, e- even from one D- down syndrome diagnosis to another down syndrome diagnosis, mm-hmm. everybody's journey is so different. I have yeah. friends who have gone through divorce and have lost a child and have gone through multiple heart surgeries and you know, their journey looks so different than mine. And I just, I like, I love that poem. I think it's a good reminder that not everybody's journey is going to be the same. It's going to be different, but no matter where you end up, you're able to find beauty, but your journey may look different than somebody
3: else's. And your children still loved. They're so loved. It doesn't matter how hard that journey is. Once they're on the other side, it does not matter.
0: Yeah, there's definitely beauty to be found in the brokenness, like the poem said, and in the the tragedy and the hardships, like some of that stuff I think is, you know, kind of a refining fire. It burns away the parts of you as a mom, as a parent that don't serve you and don't serve your children. I know a lot of the selfishness that I've had as a person have just been burned up with every medical challenge Tristan's had to face, and we haven't had to face that many, so I wonder you know, would I would I be a better mom having gone through better person having gone through some hard things with Tristan? And I think and the answer for me personally is yes, I'm definitely a better person having gone through those hardships because they've just refined my character. And I know that's like a hard thing to hear when you're in the middle of it, but um it does refine your character as a mom. And you just see how strong your kid is. And I, I kind of look at Tristan after, you know, some of these things that we've gone through, like in the ER or whatever, and you're just like, dang, my kid is a rock star. Like I made that one. <laughs> you're just so proud that that's your baby.
1: Um. So before it? we wrap things up, because I know that we have kept you for a very long time and it's getting late there in Florida for you and Paige. Um, mm-hmm. So we always post question stickers and then have any questions that people that listen to our podcast want to ask. So we picked two of them. Uh, so the first one says, what is your advice to make it through surgeries? My child has one coming up soon.
3: Um, you know, it, every surgery is different, to be honest with you. It depends on the type of surgery it is. Um, a lot of the times we know in advance, but you know, the emergency surgeries, it's really hard to know. Um, if I know in advance, you know, I'm able to plan for it, and get family back up. If it's an emergency surgery, like a shunt surgery, you know, I pack like I'm gonna be there at least one night. Um, I always have my computer, my camera, my, you know, the, those go-to things that I need to know the, that I'm gonna last at least one to two days in the hospital. Um, if I know in advance, you know, I'm obviously packing so that, you know, I can keep him happy. You know, iPad, iPhone, all that sort of stuff, um, and then lean on your your family and make sure that uh, you do have that support to to get that backup. You know, we've been very blessed that you know my husband and the kids are able to function without us when he's in surgeries, um, but then they're also able to visit and. Um, just making sure you have that family support lined up because, you know, we've had moments where we've been in the hospital one or two days or 10 days and it's, you know, a night and day experience, um, you know, being there just one day versus 10 days, 10 days takes a toll on you and being able to, you know, refresh and go home and take a shower and, you know, those things that help you renew yourself so you can continue to take care of your baby.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And so the second question says what are some current goals for your son?
3: You know the biggest goals I have, you know, a couple of things. I got, you know, one of them is independent functioning. Um I'm actually in the process of getting him back into OT. Um just things simple things like being able to put his own shoes on and you know some of his bathroom routines. We've got to be able to teach him how to use the device and, you know, the fine motor skills to do that and how he can do that independently. Because if he can't, he has to have another surgery. And so um, independent functioning is a huge thing for me. We are in virtual school. I'm so glad I did not take the chance of putting him back in physical school um, because I do not want to risk him dealing with the chaos of what's going on with COVID going around us. So, um, you know, independent functioning with even just school, like can he remember to do his you know what what is his work that he has to do and can he do it by himself or do I need to sit next to him or is he going to need assistance um, so we're working through that and then um, I think the other thing is because we're home so much right now going through virtual school we have a huge opportunity for us to teach him just regular old life skills and so he's right around he's ten and a half he's right around that age where um, with our older kids we you know, allowed them a little bit more freedoms with, we got him a phone. We're starting to teach him how to use social media. We've had a Facebook page for him. um, Just super chance. Kern is, you know, his, his handle for all the different social medias. We've had a Facebook page probably for about seven years that I've managed. And then for his ninth birthday, he wanted a YouTube that's all he wanted for his birthday his YouTube channel. That's so funny. And, so, and he that obsessively wants new subscribers. So he's just like, hey, he'll, he'll go into the hospital and show it to all the doctors and they're subscribing to his YouTube. It's hilarious. <laughs> um, so he's had that for about a year and a half and I've let him have the access so he can read the comments and he can comment from his phone. And he's been really responsible. So I've, you know, I've decided that this fall, we're going to onboard him. I have a expertise in social media. So, you know, I want to mentor him in a way that I can supervise and make sure he's safe, but that mm-hmm. he can have his own voice. And I'm really excited about this because I've kind of been there to tell his story for 10 years. Well, the next 10 years, I want him to be the one to start telling his own story, but making oh, sure yeah, he does it sure. in a way that he understands what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, and how he could be responsible versus, you know, not breaking any of those rules and things like that. And it's exciting for me because, for instance, we did math on Friday together because fifth grade, we're just now starting. And I'm so, so nervous about as things get harder, if he's going to be, you know, struggling more, or if he's going to need some more support. So the first week of school, I always sit with him. And we did math and they were teaching um one of them was rounding numbers and the other one was um you know multiplying by 10 or dividing by 10 and teaching them how to move the decimals back and forth and they had exponents and I'm like I don't remember learning exponents in fifth grade so I'm like yeah I don't I'm struggling <laughs> I'm I'm not as smart as a fifth grader oh my god like I felt like completely <laughs> stupid on some of these questions and I had to like do my homework just to support him so I'm like sitting there supporting him and he he goes. This is like 14th grade math. Says, I'm in college True. right now. That's what he posted to Instagram. He posted his math question that we both had a problem with, and then he posted a picture of both of us. And he goes, "I'm in fourth or no, fifth grade is like college." That was his Instagram post. So, <laughs> oh I'm gonna gosh. go follow him now. But I love, what was the Life skills. Life skills are the chance, biggest thing.
0: Or super chance Kern super okay. chance kern apparently there's I'm, some other super chances him. out
3: there
0: so oh, he's there he the is. first one that popped up for me yeah, um go maybe look at that we can have problem. him oh maybe we so can have cute. him be um do a takeover for us so on the tulips page that would be because we um like every other week we have a tulips takeover um so he can like you know work on his youtube videography skills and tell his little I'm, story I'm still at
3: the point he really wants to YouTube he really likes videos but he's not at the point that he's not like those YouTubers that can just sit there and chat all day he hasn't crossed that line but he loves to share things so most of what's on like his YouTube are you know physical therapy stuff he loves to do therapy it's like everything to him his therapists are like they're you know I want to say BFFs they're like so close to him But I will tell you that, um, you know, the hardest part for me is he, he has a voice, but he's still learning to be able to like vocalize it and he's, I I definitely think, you know, sometimes he overthinks it and he doesn't, he hasn't really got to the point where he's like preaching it out but I think like he's really close So I definitely think he's still so
1: young too. He'll get there. Yeah.
3: Oh, I think whenever he's
1: ready, the Tulips girls would love to have him do (laughs) a takeover. He can show us all the things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Amanda. I hoped that everyone listening loved hearing from her and appreciating all the feedback. Um, Don't forget to set your alarms for our next episode. And thank you for being part of Tulips Nation. Bye guys. Thanks for
3: having me. Thanks guys.